Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, motor lizards and melting North Pole. In addition, we'll be joined by Ulrich Bozer, who will discuss synthetic diamonds. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. That makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Freezing. <laughs> Why are you freezing? Hanging out in the Arctic. It's tough to survive in the Arctic. <laughs> Polar bears managed to do it. But uh, unfortunately, you know, as we know, it's melting, and so they're somewhat endangered. That they are. Turns out, for the first time this year, the Arctic might melt completely in the summer. Ah, so they'll all drown. What a shame. <laughs> <laughs> I think Alaska's supposed to help them a little bit. but This is actually becoming a, a actual serious issue. Symbolically, we're reaching one of those milestones in terms of the Earth's climate with so much ice melting in that region. This has been reported in a lot of news outlets, but Mark Serezi from the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center says that this could be the beginning of a trend where the Arctic gets smaller and smaller in terms of the ice, kind of worrying where this is going. <laughs> but the controversy here is that shipping companies want to use these new open lanes of the ocean for uh, transportation and uh, cargo. Mm -hmm. The other uh, big issue is that oil companies now want to go into these regions to dig up for more oil. The very thing that we're burning to cause our global warming. Well, just get the polar bears to help. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, give them some coke, right? Right. (laughs) Well, we got plenty of things to worry about. Why not add one more? What's the difference, right? Besides changing like, the global behavior of people, that's not much we can do about it at the present. Right. So we'll know very soon, within the next month or two, how much or if this ice does completely melt away for the summer. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I guess if that ice does melt away, it's good to be a lizard then. Don't they like to be warm, though? <laughs> yeah, they like to be warm, so it would be a nice uh, place for them to hang out, right? Yeah, I didn't see too many lizards when I was up the Arctic. <laughs> well, that's probably because they were running away. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but some lizards, when they're taken off from a predator, they actually wind up going bipedal. Oh, just like people. <laughs> yeah, and so actually that was a controversy, why they actually wind up running on two legs. And people thought that maybe it was because they become much more efficient runners when they're on two legs. Huh. It's run on four legs, right? Yes. And in fact, lizards run on four legs most of the time. Right. But what researchers now are finding is that, in fact, their transition from a four-legged run to a two-legged run Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with their efficiency. It may actually just be a side effect, a physical side effect of an acceleration. So it could be an aerodynamic effect then. Right. Well, the way they put it is if you ever see a boat accelerating very quickly, the front end pops up. So in the same way, these lizards, when they're running, their mass pops them up forward. 
Yeah, same thing for me. I mean, when I walk fast enough, I'm walking with just my legs. <laughs> <laughs> I like to slither more of the time. Uh, anyway, so this is very fascinating work. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology, and it was interesting. They actually put these lizards on a treadmill and sped up the treadmill at various speeds to find out the uh, correct conditions to get them to start running on two legs. I wonder what other animals might enjoy that. <laughs> uh, anyway, this was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology, and it was work done by comparative physiologist Christopher Clemen of the University of Cambridge. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ulrich Bozer will join us to discuss synthetic diamonds. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, the popular advertising slogan proclaims that a diamond is forever, but the diamond industry itself is a relatively recent development, one whose dominance may soon be undermined by synthetically created diamonds. Well, joining us today to discuss the world of synthetic diamonds is Mr. Ulrich Bozer. Mr. Bozer is an acclaimed writer for numerous publications such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Slate, and Smithsonian an awardee of the Arthur F. Burns Fellowship and Natural Award for Educational Reporting. He has been called a writer to watch by Washington Magazine, and we're very pleased, Mr. Bozer, to welcome you today to the program. Mr. Bozer. Uh, with such an introduction, I am also very pleased to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, it's certainly a very fascinating article I think you've recently written regarding uh, the whole world of synthetic diamonds, but I'm curious maybe for those people out there who are wondering, what exactly chemically is a diamond? Chemically, it is just uh, pure carbon. It's uh, similar to graphite. And the way that these labs are growing diamonds is to uh, have a very small diamond seed. And then they push in a cloud of carbon over the seed and then put in very high pressure, very high temperature, over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then at a very slow rate, about the highest rates that they've gotten are around a millimeter an hour, these seeds grow in, into actual diamonds. Oh, wow. And so is this a relatively new method? The method is relatively new. I mean, we have seen some scientists making diamonds, diamond flakes, um, as early as the late 18th century. The scientist who made that was an Irish scientist, or Scottish, I believe, and someone died in the process, you know, making these very high temperatures, very high pressures, a very dangerous thing to do. Scientists became more proficient in the 1950s, but really it's only been recently where they've become very skilled at making these diamonds, and they can produce them at cost and quality that would compare with diamonds that you'd see in a store. 
I see. And previous to this, synthetic diamonds have been around a while, but they were used as maybe low-grade materials and things like saws. Yeah, I mean, if you go to your local Home Depot, you might see a diamond saw or a diamond tip saw. And this was you know, largely diamond grit, very small diamonds. It's very important to understand, though, that the diamonds that are being made in the laboratories are exactly the same as mine diamonds. It was something that surprised me. It's, it's almost sort of hard to, to understand you. There's such a mystique around diamonds to realize that in these labs, these have the exact same chemical structure. In fact, it's very difficult to tell the diamonds apart. Right now, there's only really one way that's 100% sure. It's a very expensive device and costs as much as $50,000 to do the test. And actually, the diamonds that are grown in the lab, the synthetic or culture diamonds, look actually more pure than the mine diamonds. Um, so they're, for all intents and purposes, the exact same stone. Hmm. So what sort of implication does this have then for uh, the diamond industry in general? Well, there, there are two ways to look at it. I think what thrills people immediately is the idea that you can wear these diamonds in, in rings and uh, necklaces and so forth. But for the companies that are making these diamonds, and there are quite a few, one in Apollo in Massachusetts and Gemesis in Florida, they're actually much more interested in the industrial applications and not the diamonds or the loudspeakers uh, so much as, as semiconductors. Uh, semiconductors is a $250 billion industry, and diamond, surprisingly enough, is a wonderful substance for them. Right now, semiconductors are being made out of silicon. Silicon is a very good material for semiconductors. It's very, very common. It's basically on every single beach that you visit, and so it's uh, cheap to make. The problem with silicon is that it's fragile. If you've ever had a, a computer sitting on your lap for a long period of time, you know that it gets very, very hot. Diamond, however, is a material that can be easily tweaked to hold an electrical charge. In other words, it's easily made into a semiconductor, and it's a much stronger, much uh, better material to deal with, and it does not get as hot, which means you can make much smaller semiconductors, which means you can make smaller computers and, and even perhaps to imagine even a smaller iPod. Well, I'm sure that would please all the people out there. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so have there been any forays into actually creating semiconductor chips with diamond? Yeah, they have begun to make semiconductor chips with diamond. They tend to make them in, for very specialized areas. Military is, of course, very interested in this. Companies that make uh, satellites shooting something off into space where you see a lot of temperature differences is, again, an area where they found some success. They've just started to get into these industrial applications, the semiconductor area. Other industrial applications for diamonds are actually quite many. I mean, we have seen some uh, loudspeakers, specifically tweeters that have diamonds in them. We've seen artificial hips that have some diamond in them. A company named uh, Element 6 is making that. They use the diamond because diamond, as you know, is the hardest known substance, and so we don't really want artificial hips coming in and out of someone's body, and so to have the point where the joints meet, to have that as diamond-tipped is being explored as well. Uh, you actually talk about one of the founders of one of these companies who actually perfected his technique in his garage. Yeah, that's right. He had been involved in other semiconductor technologies and then really saw the diamond as the way to go, as the future of semiconductors. And so he had sold a company. He'd worked for GE for, for many, many, many years, working on uh, calcium arsenite, and then had started to work on this in his garage, had perfected this. I should take a step back for a moment. And this cloud that I described earlier, this sort of carbon cloud that sits over the carbon seeds, 
it's a very specialized point where you want to hit in terms of connecting the pressure and the temperature. And so it's a lot of the scientific method of trial and experiment and to see that exact point where you can have these diamonds grow on top of the seeds. And, and that's the work that he did in his garage. I should say that the company is exceptionally secretive. And so to go there, I had to sign an agreement that I wouldn't tell too much about their proprietary method. And some of the exact details of how this was worked out in his garage was something that he didn't want to discuss as well. Uh, I see. So we can't tease it out of you on the program then. <laughs> and, well, alas, I myself don't don't know, and they weren't telling me. <laughs> well, I'm sure it might spot a garage inventors trying to perfect the process themselves. <laughs> it certainly sounds very tempting. So how does it compare with how diamonds are formed naturally in the earth? In some ways, it's, it's very similar. You know, you're, again, using the high pressure and high temperature. There's actually two ways to make these diamonds. The one company in Apollo, Massachusetts, is using this harbor vapor deposition, and that's a process that I described earlier, and that's making very pure, very high-quality diamonds. There's another company, that, and there are more of these companies out there in the marketplace that are making high-pressure, high-temperature diamonds. This is a technology, actually, that was started by the Soviets in the 1930s and 40s, and that's actually really, truly replicating what goes on in the Earth. And you have these basically very high-end tumblers, and you heat them up to very high degrees. And so it's very similar to what happened 100 billion years ago or so when we saw the formation of diamonds deep within the, the Earth's mantle. Hmm. Uh, and some of you might be surprised to find that these conditions aren't actually that rare, and diamond is, in fact, relatively abundant. Diamond is relatively abundant. There's about 75,000 pounds of diamond was produced worldwide in 2006. Rubies are actually, in fact, more common than, than diamonds are. What we've seen with diamonds is that largely De Beers has created a mystique around them that uh, all of us believe in when we buy gifts for perhaps our, our partners. And it's a symbol of love, it's a symbol of power, it's a symbol of trust. And that's why you don't see a huge market in used diamond engagement rings. We really believe in the power of this stone and, and what it symbolizes. Mm, so it's really a very effective uh, marketing. They were incredibly effective. And before the 1950s, you did not see diamonds used as engagement rings, or at least not very prominently. De Beers came in, and they've done a wonderful job marketing to people. Their efforts were often voted as some of the number one marketing techniques of all time. And they used actors and actresses very well to support the use of diamonds and the idea that diamonds are forever. And they still remain very powerful in the marketplace, though they've had some trouble competing against some of the Canadian and Latin American mine diamond companies. Mm. Do they have interest in uh, the synthetic diamonds? They do. They are very, very aware of what's going on in this. They actually own a company called Element 6. They're the company that makes the diamond that goes into the artificial hip. The company does not, Element 6 to be clear, produce any cultured diamonds that are then used in the jewelry business. From the De Beers perspective, the cultured or uh, laboratory diamonds are to be used only for industrial purposes and uh, only mine diamonds go then into the jewelry business. But one imagines that whoever is sitting at the top of De Beers is making sure that they have their hands on the pulse of both the ways of uh, having diamonds. Uh, I'm curious, do you think consumers would actually be interested in jewelry uh, synthetic diamonds? I think they are. There's a debate right now. Uh, the mine diamond industry has approached the FTC and said that they uh, only want the word synthetic used for uh, these diamonds grown in laboratories. 
the companies that are making these diamonds in laboratories want the word cultured used to describe these diamonds. And I think therein kind of lies the rub. Cultured sounds a lot better. It sounds, in fact, cultured. And synthetic, of course, has this feel that it's, you know, plastic or something like that. I think that the companies that are making the diamonds in laboratories see a couple of niche markets. They see, one, people who are interested in, in kind of green diamonds, so to speak, diamonds that are produced without no harm to human life, without environmental devastation, which is often associated with diamonds that come out of the earth. The companies that are growing the diamonds in laboratories also see a huge area in India and China where there's growing middle class, more people buying diamonds, and so they also see uh, an area for them to gain a good foothold into the market. How far along are these companies in terms of actually mass producing these really high quality stones? They're very far along. Powell's been doing this now for 10 years. When I visited them, they were selling these diamonds on their website. People had been wearing a few of them to the Academy Awards. They are also being sold in, in Boston jewelry stores. And they were getting enough money to triple, quadruple their capacity within the next few years. So they are definitely mass producing right now, and it's only expected to grow. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's interested. How do the price compare? The price compare right now isn't as great as one might imagine, and the reason for that is, is multifold. On one side, the companies that are growing diamonds in labs don't want to suddenly undercut their competitors. Everyone's very well aware that there's sort of an artificial price structure in place for diamonds, and that if you release too many into the market, there's just going to be a price crash, and that really doesn't benefit anyone. Well, it doesn't benefit anyone, perhaps the consumer who's buying the diamond. And so right now, the laboratory-grown diamonds are about the same as regular diamonds, maybe a little bit cheaper. You do find larger price gaps, maybe around 15 20% in some of the more unusual-looking diamonds, maybe a yellow diamond or a purple diamond. Those diamonds are very rare when they're grown in the earth. They're very rare for mine diamonds. And so if you can grow them in labs, it's actually much easier to add kind of cool colors. And I can see what Apollo is telling me is that you will be able to, probably within the next 5, 10 years, go to them and, and special order a diamond. Say you want a, a purple square and, and maybe you want something sort of written on the side of it, and they would be able to produce that to your specifications. Well, it'll be interesting to see if Walmart ever gets a hold of these, then the price would really drop. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm curious, how did you yourself actually become interested in the story? I had heard about this technology, and it just seemed so hard to believe that these were the same exact diamond. I actually asked one of the companies to lend me one of their synthetic or cultured diamonds, and I took it to jewelry stores and asked them you know, if they were able to tell. And they were all roundly surprised at just how much these diamonds were exactly the same as diamonds that are mined in the earth. Hmm. So there's really no easy way to tell, he said. Yeah, there is no easy way to tell. De Beers is really pushing a device that's sold for around $10,000, and that device can tell about 80% of the time. But for the most part, for a regular corner store jeweler, they are not going to have these devices. Even you know, a Tiffany's or a Cartier is not going to have this device. And so it's very difficult to tell. One of the fears right now is that most of the companies right now that are producing these cultured or synthetic diamonds put a little label on the side saying this diamond was made by Apollo is made by Genesis. And so when you were to bring that to a jeweler, with a jeweler's loop, you'd be able to see that little inscription on the side. And most diamonds that are made by De Beers right now have a little inscription on the side, too. It's not visible to the naked eye, but it uh, is a little sort of VIN number, if you will, for diamonds. It's actually, though, very easy to rub that off. Uh, Any jeweler would be able to do that. And so there is this fear that these 
culture diamonds will be entered into the marketplace. An unscrupulous dealer, and there are many within the diamond business, hmm. will just sort of tweak off that little inscription on the side and then sell it as a regular diamond. Hmm. Wow. So barring that number, it's really uh, hard to tell. Very hard to tell. Wow. What do you see the future for these uh, culture diamonds? I think what we're going to see is just an incredible amount of the growth in semiconductors. It's an enormous field, and we're going to see diamonds in computers, diamonds in watches, diamonds in video players, and, and I think it's going to be an incredible growth field and, and allow us to produce much more uh, interesting and, and more efficient technologies. Well, Mr. Uh, Bozer, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about the uh, fascinating world of synthetic culture diamonds. Well, thank you. It's been an honor. And you're just listening to Ulrich Bozer discussing the synthetic diamonds. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flats or help you feed your arms again. to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic diamond or graphite. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, they could be considered diamond or graphite and maybe a little a reason why. Uh, Mr. Bose, you ready to play the game? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Person number one, diamond or graphite, the uh, mogul Donald Trump. I would have to say graphite. I think the main reason is would be his his hair. <laughs> clearly synthetic. Clearly, clearly and proudly synthetic. <laughs> Cannot be labeled cultured, I would think either. <laughs> no, no, I think one would have no choice but to go with the the graphite there. Okay. Uh, person number two is Apple founder Steve Jobs. That's a tough one. I have to. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go with diamond. And I think my my reason is that I think that Steve Jobs would love to get smaller semiconductors out there. Uh, number three is the founder of De Beers, Cecil Rhodes. You know, he again just sort of speaks diamond to me. I'm sure his industry does, too. <laughs> and I'm sure his industry does as well. Uh, number four is the golfer, Tiger Woods. 
Golf for Tiger Woods, you know, when I look at images of Tiger, he, he doesn't seem to wear a lot of diamonds, but he certainly sort of seems to be the, the real deal, so I think I'm going to vote again for diamond. That's really tough as diamond anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number five is finally the President of the United States, George Bush. Well, that's, a, that's a, a, again, a tough one, but I, I'm going to go for graphite. And, and uh, looking at his poll numbers right now, I think I'm on, on safe bet that other people will vote that way with me. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Uh, Bozer, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and, of course, talking about the fascinating world of synthetic diamonds. Thanks so much. It's been a blast. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. So something I've been wondering for a while, why are blueberries so good for you? <laughs> And joining us right now is Mr. Willy Wonka with the answer. That's right, Frank. Welcome to my parade of cavalcades. We are the dreamers of dreams. <laughs> Would you like to meet my Oompa Loompas? Sure, you know, I could use one to uh, scratch my back. They would like to tell you, Frank, about the blueberries and why they're so good for you. Okay. <laughs> It's because they're filled with all sorts of flavonoids and antioxidants. Good for the brain. Wow, Mr. Oompa Loompa. Thanks a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.